0: I'm Jade Calloway. I've been a presenter at BFBS The Forces Station for nearly 10 years now. I was born just two months before Iraq's president, Saddam Hussein, invaded Kuwait in August 1990. In this series, I'm learning all about the 1991 Gulf War by hearing from those who fought in it. Oh my God, this is it. I'm going to get
1: airborne in less than an hour, and I might not come back. This is not Top Gun. this is the real deal, and you had, it was a really reflective moment, I think, for everyone.
2: For the first three or four days of the air war, we were grounded because they didn't want us to be appear as a threat. At night, you could see the Contra trails, and as we got closer to The actual action was happening. You could see the flak
3: going up. Attack, 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 take cover, take cover.
4: Clearly, uh, Saddam Hussein is losing this war. I think he knows he's losing it. He started it and he's losing it.
0: This is Gramby, the storm in the desert.
1: Five months ago, Saddam Hussein started this cruel war against Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined. From BFBS London.
5: In
3: this edition, the Allies launch a huge airstrike against Iraq. Many
0: targets. On the, the 16th of January 1991, coalition forces began an aerial bombardment of Iraq, which would last for the next five weeks. Saddam Hussein had failed to withdraw his troops from Kuwait, despite a final United Nations resolution requiring him to do so. The deadline had passed, and Operation Desert Storm had begun. Sir John Major was Prime Minister.
4: January the 16th, 1991 was my son's 16th birthday. And I had been out there to see the troops. Many of them were little older than my son. There were many there who were 18. The bulk of the troops to be involved in mainstream fighting were between 18 and 23. From my perspective, they were very young men indeed, and some of them still looked like boys. And I could superimpose my son's face on many of those young people because another two years and he might have been there.
0: Sir John wasn't the only VIP to take a trip to the Gulf before the conflict began. Major General Patrick Cordingley, who was commander of 7th Armoured Brigade, remembers a royal visit. I think we were very chaffed that
6: the Prince of Wales came out, that he made the effort and... He was very good with the soldiers, and they liked it. They very much liked it and were, were proud that he'd been, been to see them. And also, I'd say the reverse. You know, he wrote to me afterwards, saying how moved he was by everything he'd seen. And, and I just thought, this is good news, really. It's good news all round.
4: Because of time differences the bombing, with which, was, which was the first uh, 14, 15, 19 days of the, uh, of the campaign to degrade the Iraqi uh, defenses, was, was carried out from, uh, from the air. And that started at midnight every night. I think I was up every night till two, three o'clock in the morning to see how it was going, and then back up awake again at six o'clock to see how it had gone. And some of my senior civil servants were up all night, night after night after night. So yes, it weighs very heavily on everyone concerned because I think we're very conscious that older men and women send younger men and women to war. We may have to make the decision to go, but they bear the risk of being seriously injured, perhaps for life or not returning at all.
1: I'm John Peters. I was formerly an RAF Tornado fighter pilot. The anticipation of Iraq, I mean, Iraq had this, yes, massive army, it had the most integrated air defence system outside of the central European uh, region. And so we were looking at this, this was, the expectations were this is going to be really bad. Also the aspects of he'd use chemical warfare. Uh, So a lot of the anticipation of the war, or the impending war, if we were going to go, because it was still up to the brinkmanship, was uh, this was going to be a full-blown big war. Suddenly our whole world accelerated, we got home, we were suddenly given tanks and bombs and missiles, suddenly everyone was literally throwing money at the squadrons, because suddenly it was, you're going to go to war. Uh, It took a number of months, Uh, our operational flying uh, tempo increased, Uh, we were allowed to fly low level throughout the whole of the UK, in war fit, at war speeds. But we didn't get a single noise complaint. But behind that, also, things like we didn't have maps of Kuwait. You know, we used the Times Atlas and expanded that out and were starting to plot Iraq and the missile systems on the Times Atlas. So there was this juxtaposition of technology suddenly being offered and made available and the jets getting updated, and at the same time, there was no information, and suddenly the system had to learn about that region. Martin
0: Wintermeyer and Mal Craghill were tornado navigators. Where I
3: found it most frightening was um, in the bus on the way out to the first mission when the first night we lost a jet from Bahrain. And we're thinking, oh, that is actually quite dangerous. And we're in the bus and from the operations room where we planned. It's about an hour's drive and it took about an hour to get from there to there. So we did all this really frantic planning. And then we had to sit on the bus for approaches <laughs> while we waited to the aeroplanes. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, my God, this is it. I'm going to get airborne in less than an hour and I might not come back. And you think, well, maybe I won't go. Maybe I have a cold and I can't clear my ears. I won't be able to fly. But then you look around and think, no, do you know what? I'm here with my mates. There's eight of us in this bus. There's four aircraft. We're going to go off and do this job together. You know, I'm doing it with them. I'm doing it for them. I'm doing it on behalf of everyone in this formation. So you can't let them down. You've got to go. So uh, that sort of dispelled any fear and terror I had then. But it was. It was just at the back of your mind really thinking, "Eh,
5: do you know what? This might be it. There were some odd moments where things weren't like you'd ever had them before. So going out to the aircraft on the first night for us, we were escorted out across the airfield to our aircraft by a group of the RF regiment in, I don't recall what kind of vehicles, probably Land Rovers with big machine guns mounted on them. And we would never had that before. We never had an armed guard to take us to the aircraft before. And everything was done on that first night was radio silent. We didn't want anyone to know what we were doing or when we were taking off or that we were coming. Everything's done on timings and light signals, and we taxied all the way out to the runway, and at Tabuk, there are two runways, a military runway and a civilian runway. And as we're waiting to take off, just holding short of the military runway, there was a civilian aircraft coming in on the civil runway, and we're listening to all of this, but not talking. The Saudi air traffic controller says, yeah, you're cleared to land. Uh, traffic is a full ship of tornadoes <laughs> waiting for departure on runway, whatever. Uh, we just, you know, you could always hear a collective rolling of eyeballs at that point. It was, oh, well, brilliant. Now, we've done so well up to this point And now they've gone and blown it for us. So
1: 160, 10 miles on
0: our nose. 10 miles on the nose, right? As well as the Tornado GR1s that had joined their F3 counterparts, many other aircraft would be part of the war effort. Remember when we said this was the biggest build-up of military hardware since the Second World War? Well... Picture this. Right. Jaguars, Buccaneers, Nimrods, Islanders, Hercules, Tristars, VC tens, victors, and Phantoms were all in action. And that's just the fixed wing. On the rotary front there were gazelles, lynx, chinooks, sea kings, and pumas among the British air power of the RAF, Army Air Corps, and Royal Navy in the region. Chief Tech Jeff Brown was a ground engineer on the C-130 Hercules. Since August, he'd been supporting the Herc fleet from the UK, RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus and in Bahrain. Operating in the Gulf came with its risks for these crews flying low and slow.
2: For the first three or four days of the air war, we were grounded because they didn't want us to be, appear as a threat because we obviously flew at medium or low level my crew our operations didn't start until the 22nd of january when things appeared to be safer but on two occasions when we were um, committed to take off we were approaching v1 which is the safe rotation speed at bahrain and at King Khalid, we got over the radio the red 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 air raid warning red trouble is the captain was committed to take off So we just had to clean up the aircraft and depart the scene very quickly at low level. Particularly at King Khalid, myself and the loadmaster, the loadmaster was down the back on missile watch and I was in the cupola. As the um, captain rotated, we had a spectacular view of Patriots intercepting Scuds above us. Myself and the loadmaster were screaming at the captain, jink left, jink left, because the debris from the intercept would have hit us.
0: Once they were airborne, the C-130s proved their worth. We just got on with
2: it. Some days we were up before dawn and we were back after nightfall and we'd probably done seven, eight, maybe nine different sectors carrying all sorts of different loads from ammunition to Challenger, engine change units to Kuwaiti interpreters. Liquid oxygen, ammunition, you name it.
0: Meanwhile, on the ground, away from the airfields... The 17th of January, off the top of my head, the air war started.
6: And of course, we heard about it through CNN, not through our own own command system, because actually most of our news that we were listening came through the World Service or CNN. And I think one was actually just as intrigued as people back in this country. We couldn't see it. We were given reports, again, that took a couple of days of what the effects of the bombing might have been. And we did feel at that stage as well that this was going to be so successful, this air campaign, that again, we might not have to go and and fight and go into Iraq ourselves. And not many of us really wanted to do that.
0: Station manager of BFBS Middle East was Jonathan Bennett, who remembers clearly the need to keep calm and carry on despite the inevitable change of mood on the 17th of January.
3: Ooh, yeah, that day is engraved in my memory. We didn't quite know what to do. The programme schedule went out of the window. And I remember I put Dave Boyle on the air. Everybody was running around very nervously. And uh, he said, what do I do? I said, just go on the air and be you. So he did. And he calmed everybody down, I think, because he was just being the idiot that he is and was. And uh, people thought, well, if he's being him, then maybe there's not too much to worry about. So I think we did a good thing there. But later on, we had the first Scud missile attack, and the fear of chemical and biological weapons was very, very real. We didn't know what was going to be inside these things. We had a a military telephone, secure military telephone link called Tarmigan. And we had to take it in turns manning this because One of our jobs was to put out an air raid warning for the guys who couldn't hear the air raid sirens that moved around a lot. So the instruction to them was carry a portable radio, listen to the FPS. If there's an air raid warning, you'll hear it, take the appropriate action. So I was actually on the ptarmigan when that first air raid came through. And we knew what was going on. We knew the sirens had started going off, but I didn't know whether they wanted me to broadcast the warning or not. So while everybody else was putting their NBC suits and respirators on, I had to sit there with the phone to my ear, waiting for the instruction. So I couldn't get my respirator and NBC suit on. So then they came on and said, yeah, BFBS, go. Obviously, time was of the essence. Every second counted. So I just had to leap to my feet, run across the compound, and you'll have heard the phrase, your heart beating out of your chest. Mine really, really was when I was running across there. It physically hurt. I got into the studio. Um, we were rebroadcasting something else. So I cut in on that, tried to control my breathing and my heart rate made the announcement, attack, 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 take cover, take cover, something like that. We had it actually written down in the studio so we could get it right. And you can hear the fear in my voice. I mean, it it was very real, very genuine. And you can hear the air raid sirens in the background going. And uh, if I was to hear it now, I think I'd be scared all over again.
0: US cruise missiles were used for the first time in warfare. Troops on land and sea remember the sights and sounds of the air war raging above them.
2: Going out into the trench for your stag for your duty, the skies in the Gulf were crystal because there was no real ambient light to stop anything. So you could see a billion stars in the sky. It was staggering. But when the air war started, you could see the planes flying over because of their navigation lights. And then two hours later, you could see them flying back. That's quite an extraordinary thing to see. It was something to
3: behold, really. Although I could never identify who it was or what aircraft it was, the sky was full of aircraft, and it was heading towards Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and heading towards Kuwait, going north and unloading at the enemy.
6: At night, you could hear the firing from the American Navy using their cruise missiles and the battleships. I think it was the New Jersey was shelling the Iraqi forces ashore. So all this was going on, if you like, over our heads.
0: It was intense and it was very busy. And at night you could see the tracking of the military fire. You could see it. So we were very much in the thick of things.
1: Normally there would be air raid sirens if we suspected maybe a scub missile was gonna come down. I mean, most of the time it was like false alarms but you never knew. It was a screeching.
3: Everybody took it very, very seriously. Now the scud attacks varied in intensity throughout the war, but fortunately Algebial didn't suffer too badly. And after the first attack, we were fairly confident they weren't going to carry chemical or biological warheads. So it wasn't quite as terrifying as it was on that first attack.
0: Although the nuclear, biological and chemical threat hadn't reared its ugly head, it still demanded a very rapid wardrobe change into what BFBS's Jonathan Bennett described as a personal sauna. Nevertheless, he'd rather have been unbearably hot than without protection when Iraqi Scud missiles were in the vicinity.
3: One night there was quite a concentrated attack, mostly at Dharan and the American forces to the south of us. But the Scuds had to go over al to get to Dharan. And since we weren't required to broadcast an air raid warning that time, all of the BFBS and SSBC guys, including myself, were huddled inside our NBC suits, respirators and combat helmets, very unpleasant to wear. So when the all clear was sounded, I went outside and looked up to see a scud arcing down to the ground and it went straight over my head, about 50 feet up, I would think, looked like it was six feet, but probably about 50 Uh, The motor had cut out, but there were sparks and smoke coming out of the back end. I do remember that. And I shot back inside, screaming at the guys to suit up again. And simultaneously, the air raid sirens went off again. And there was a loud explosion close by. So far as I know, by pure luck, nobody was hurt. But I have no idea why we were stood down while this thing was still flying. And we found out later that the Patriot ground-to-air missiles that should have taken it out had been stood down. Or so the story went. So we were pretty lucky. It could have easily hit us.
0: Petty Officer Robert Hunter felt safer for being at sea on board HMS Heckler.
6: The Scud missiles wasn't something that affected me. I mean, I was aware of what was happening with them, but we never felt that they were going to be fired at the ship. You know, you'd have a, a job accurately hitting a ship with a Scud missile.
0: On the night of the 17th of January, Tornado pilot John Peters and navigator John Nickel were told they would be carrying out the first low-level raid in daylight.
1: We got in at midnight and they said, you're going in the morning. And we went, no, we're not. That's ridiculous because every conversation, there was never going to be a day low-level sortie by a tornado uh, against an airfield. It was deemed too, too dangerous. It was all going to be night work. And so literally, when people say, you just do what you're told. No, I mean, our formation leader argued for about two to three hours as we were planning for the mission to go, uh, planning to go, going, this is ridiculous, this is a suicide mission. Despite their concerns, they got on with the
0: job, preparing for what was to be the only daylight low-level sortie by a tornado
1: against a target. When we got in the van and we picked up our guns and everything and got in the van and we were being driven off to, to fly off, there was this really sudden eerie silence where you suddenly thought, this is real. You know, this is not, this is not Top This is the real deal. And you had it was a really reflective moment, I think, for everyone. I do remember though a break just before we started to get changed, where we went off to have some breakfast. And I remember walking across the uh, the airfield to the sort of hangar where the food place was, and I remember just kind of going, ah, and I stopped, and then I went. Yeah, and just carried on, and that was, I suppose, a real... That, you know, this is real, this is no longer, you know, just planning. And then, actually, the training does exactly what it says on the tin. You, get, you start planning, you start uh, looking, you know, you walk out to your aircraft, uh, and your head is full of, what do I need to do? You've got the mission in your head, you're, you're thinking about all, all the stuff you think about on a normal mission. So it pretty much is de facto what you expect. Our target on the morning was uh, an airfield called Aramala Southwest, which is to the south, southeast of uh, Baghdad. And uh, we were going, our mission was to drop eight 1,000 pound bombs. We were going to loft it. You loft it because you want to stay out of sight of the bubble of all the air defence systems. So, a number of miles out from target, you pull the aircraft up into a climb and then you throw the bombs a number of miles onto the airfield. Uh, and uh, we were going to do that. It was a dispersed operating base, so it wasn't the main base they were flying to, but as we were attacking those bases, they would probably fly to the other dispersed base to then continue their operation. So it's part of the integrated uh, removal of their air assets, which is what the tornado was um, designed for. We flew out from Bahrain, went, uh, uh, sort of paralleled almost, the Saudi border, and then headed north. Um, uh, and it was a high-low-high, high. so you're going in at high level, then you drop down under the radar horizon uh, to get down to low level uh, to attack the airfield. Everything we had done before, gone up to the pull-up point, in the head-up display, the timing comes down, I pull up. In the head-up display, you're meant to get all the loft information and the, the bomb will automatically release. I committed the uh, the loft thing. As I, as I pulled up, just the whole loft dumped uh, the head-up. All, all symbols you just went left. By which time, I mean, everyone's shooting us. I mean, you are surrounded by guns, missiles and bullets and everything like that. Uh, but you've got a finite time. You know, you're up for seconds, then you've got to get back down or else you're going to get taken out. Uh, and I remember swearing. <laughs> you don't want to hear the tape. Swearing, swearing, swearing. Uh, I then recovered the aircraft, continued to swear. After we came off target, besides me swearing at John... Uh, and he, he was going, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sure, you know, we, we were pretty tense. Uh, we're coming back home, it was just us and we re-attack, you know, how do you go back to your mates and said you'd failed? Uh, but then you say, look, this whole airfield is lit up, you know, and, it, and they know you're coming, they've seen you coming, we'll die. So we so we dumped the bombs in the desert, which that is my biggest uh, failure. And then we headed home and about 50 miles, 60 miles on the way home um, there was a huge kabang and the whole aircraft got hit by a missile and it went right up our right-hand engine. We got taken out by a Sam 1416 heat-seeking missile off the heat-seeking engine. It went up the right-hand engine, uh, took out the engine, took out the flabber wire. The aircraft rotated a couple of times and managed to get that under control. And then anti-aircraft guns hit my right-hand wing, hit our sidewinder missile. It ignited the rocket pellet and a four-metre torture flame shot out the front of our wing and slowly but surely start to cut our right-hand wing off. So we're there trying to solve problems, trying to get this aircraft back to base until John started screaming, we're on fire, we're on fire. And I said, I know we're on fire. And he said, no, look back. And I just could not see the back of my aircraft. It was like flying the nose of an aircraft outside this comet of flame, and it was coming towards us. I couldn't see my right-hand wing, and you basically go, "This aircraft is going nowhere." So you then step into your next trained reaction of, "We've got to get out of here." Well, you just very quickly go, "Okay, right, we're going to eject." Give us some, gave us some, some Latin long, so we uh, had that in our mind. Though I obviously instantly forgot it. Uh, made a call, pulled up, uh, or easy aircraft up, and we ejected, I know from the black box, we ejected at 320 feet. Grab the handle, it's a quarter second delay, it feels like a complete lifetime, and the seat goes off and it's like a giant groucher by the shoulders, yanks you out of the cockpit, whoosh, 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 yeah, if you want to know what it's like, shut your eyes, shake your head around, make rocket noises, uh, and then hear a bang, and open your eyes and you're on the end of a parachute. I was on the parachute for about 10 seconds and (laughs) hit the ground like a sack of potatoes. We landed in the desert and uh, it's suddenly deathly quiet. And I was sat down a bit dazed from the ejection and John wandered across, landed about 100 meters away, picked up his parachute, wandered across, stood above me and went, this'll be the Iraqi desert. And we laughed. I mean, it was just pathetic. You know, we'd been at the front end of the largest air offensive in the history of mankind, flying this really powerful machine with bombs, tanks, guns, and uh, suddenly you just got two little pink bodies a thousand miles from anybody who likes you. Uh, Literally, with, you know, no ideas and nowhere to go.
0: Next time on Granby, the storm in the desert.
4: One of the reasons it will go on for a while yet is that we certainly don't wish to engage uh, any land forces voluntarily until such time as we're satisfied that the air attacks have degraded the capacity of the Iraqis to respond. Aircraft
3: don't take ground and they don't move people on and they don't move an enemy on. At some point when that was finished, we would be expected to play our part it was an exciting time, it was a pressurised time, but only in the sense that you
6: just wanted to make sure that you got your job done right because um, it was an important thing that you were doing and you didn't want to let anybody down.
0: When it happened, it happened thick and fast. We had a lot of casualties and, you know, we were all kind of questioning how we would look after people that were effectively from the other side, you know, the enemy. And we had a lot of those casualties through. This is a BFBS podcast produced by me, Jade Calloway, and Jess Bracey, with interviews from our friends at Forces News. Sound design and editing is by Joe Carden, and our editor is Josella Waldron.
5: I saw it for the first time. I was like, wow. In a brand new BFBS podcast. Somebody once said to me, don't work on an aircraft that doesn't have a toilet.
0: Self-confessed
1: aviation geeks Alex Gill and Ginny Carlin.
5: It's like someone started drawing one aircraft. Meet pilots. Air crew, And ground crew. <laughs> and then ends up finishing <laughs> with another. <laughs> and
1: share their endless
0: passion for planes. They are the math geeks. geeks.
5: Taking off with a new episode every Tuesday at bfbs.com slash podcast. Or
0: wherever
4: you get your podcasts.